Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to our Gloucester History Festival specials. Now just a word of warning before we start. We are recording these in the middle of Gloucester City Centre. And try as I might, we just can't edit out the background noise of a bustling historic city. But these are fantastic interviews, and I really hope that you'll enjoy them, despite a little background noise. Enjoy the show. So hello, and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we invite our leading historians to get angry with us and what we think. The podcast where myth is connived against so that the truth can become dominant. I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I'm recording today live at the Gloucester History Festival, a festival that's offering 150 talks over two weeks from the beautiful setting of Blackfriars Priory in the heart of this historic city. And kicking off the first of our special rages today, I am joined by historian and author of Uncrowned Queen, The Fateful Life of Margaret Beaufort, Nicola Tallis. Nicola, welcome to History Rage. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. I'm absolutely delighted to be with you today. Thank you very much. My ego is swelling already. (laughs) So you've actually been recommended to us by several previous guests that we've had on the podcast. Uh, So yes, certainly. So thank you very much for making this your first and I hope not last appearance. Um, And when the festival offered you up as an angry sacrifice, how could I refuse? (laughs) Happy to be a sacrifice. But could you take a moment to tell us a little bit about your background, first of all, how you ended up in this field and why people should make a point of coming to the festival? Yeah, of course. So my path into doing what I'm doing was slightly unusual because I've always loved history, but my history teacher at school was pretty hopeless, I'll be honest, and um, said to me, you're just not cut out for this. Don't do it. And I didn't have much confidence. I went and trained as a beauty therapist, did that for a bit, and then had a accident where I tore a ligament in my wrist, had my wrist in a plaster cast and thought, oh gosh, what am I going to do? And it was at that point that I came to history because I very, very luckily met a uh, historian who's now a very good friend of mine who wrote a reference for me for university. And yeah, the rest is history. So I was very lucky in that respect. 
And then Gloucester History Festival is one of the most brilliant festivals in the country. There are so many different amazing historians talking about different genres of history. And I think that there is really something for everybody. So I would fully encourage everybody to come and check out the programme. You're not going to want to miss it. Yeah, it is an impressive programme. But let us get in to today's History Roads. And so this is the question that we ask everybody that comes on the podcast. So Nicola, what is the one thing you wish everyone would just stop believing? Margaret Beaufort killed the princes in the tower. Now, I am not a naturally angry person, I have to say. I'm normally quite zen, quite chilled, but this is the one thing that does really make my blood boil and it just irritates me because I hear it time and time again and, you know, most of the time I'll sit and nod. Oh, right, okay, thank you. Yeah, okay. Yeah, move along. Yeah, move, move along. along. <laughs> Can we stop talking about this now? And I'm not biased to Margaret in any way, shape or form. And I think that that's what's quite important. I don't necessarily, you know, I've got no reason to say, oh yeah, she's great. She's the best person ever. I've come to my conclusion about her by researching and yeah. going back to the sources. And that is where my research led me. So I just find it so frustrating that people are so quick to judge. Hang on. Were you there? Did you see her do it? Yeah. I do. She, she does have this reputation. I remember some years ago, it's my, my wife is more the medievalist than I am. Okay. Uh, but we were watching, it was something on Channel 4 about the Princes in the Tower kind of drama documentary about the Perkin Warbeck uprising and so forth. <laughs> yeah. And I will never forget her review of it, which is she got to the end and went, well, the costumes were good, but they may as well have just given Margaret Beaufort a basket of apples and had done with it. <laughs> I love that, yeah. She is this pantomime villain, isn't she? Oh, she is, yeah. Well, can you provide us then with a mo with an overview of who Margaret Beaufort actually was and then her significance in history? Yeah, of course. So Margaret Beaufort is best known as being the mother of Henry VII, the first monarch of the Tudor dynasty. But I do think that there is so much more to her than that because she was also an influential power player in the late 15th century when the Wars of the Roses are well underway in England. And this period is a time of really women coming to the fore and that is all because of circumstance and, you know, the unprecedented nature of events that England finds itself in. And so there's a lot to be admired about Margaret. She's an extraordinary character who knew when to be pragmatic and bend her knee to her enemies when she needed to. Yeah. And knew then when to make the most of, of life when it was good. So she's a very important power player in the context of the late 15th century and early 16th century. And I would argue that perhaps she is actually more important than Henry VII himself. Ooh, ooh. we'll get you on for a fight with Nathan yeah, Oden for that yeah. one, then, shall we? Yeah. <laughs> so you described her as this formidable and influential figure, um, particularly within the Wars of the Roses era. So what are some of her key contributions to political and, and the social landscape of that 30-year conflict and its wider setting? Yeah, so... Margaret is born into the house of Lancaster so that is always where her loyalties lie and we don't see her pay, play a particularly prominent role in the Wars of the Roses to begin with because when the Wars of the Roses break out Margaret's just a teenager 
a teenager who's had a child, but nevertheless, there isn't particularly any direct role for her to play as such. But I think that role as a mother is actually where her, her, her place in society and in politics and the whole landscape really comes into play because it's her son that Margaret is primarily motivated by in all aspects of her life. So mm -hmm. her political movements are all motivated by Henry and everything is about keeping Henry safe. So when Henry VI is deposed and Edward IV, House of York, is established and this puts Margaret on opposing sides, she recognises that there's not only her safety to consider but that of her son and this is when she really tries to ingratiate herself with the House of York. And she does everything she can to try and gain Edward IV's trust and to convince him that she's not a threat, that her son is in no way a threat. Mm -hmm. And she basically realises that it's politically expedient to wait for better days and to lie low. So she doesn't do a great deal apart from try to rehabilitate her family during Edward IV's reign. And she's busy trying to affect a reconciliation between Edward IV and her son, Henry Tudor, who has fled abroad into exile fo following the Lancastrian defeat at the Battle of Tewkesbury in 1471. So she's busy trying to find a way whereby Henry can return safely home. And she does come really close to doing that because Edward IV drafts a pardon for Henry, Henry Tudor and it looks like Henry can come home and that's all through Margaret's machinations but then it all goes completely wrong this always reminds me right of like a moment that moment at the end of EastEnders the dun 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 <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I liken it to because suddenly he's drafted this pardon and then Edward IV dies I mean how inconvenient I mean that was inconvenient for everybody was the death of Edward IV really wasn't yeah, it <laughs> so inconvenient I mean imagine how different history would have been had he lived that's a whole different story of course um, but yeah so then Margaret really does come to the fore in the political landscape because I feel this is a real turning point in her life when you know um eventually Richard III establishes himself on the throne, usurps, establishes, whatever you want to say. Whichever side of that camp you're on. Exactly that. <laughs> Hello, Richard III Society. I'm taking care of you. Exactly. So, yeah, you were very good there. Um, so that is the moment. I feel like it's at that moment that Margaret, everything that I've spoken about, about her being sort of pragmatic, that all goes to pot at that moment because it's almost like, she thinks, oh, I was this close to getting my son home. And now it's, it's all up in the air. Because I think Richard basically doesn't give her the same assurances of Henry's safety as Edward IV had. Yeah. And so Margaret seems to throw caution to the wind. She begins plotting on Henry's behalf against Richard III. And unfortunately for her, it goes badly wrong in the sense that Richard discovers what's been happening and I guess it could have been a whole lot worse for her because she could have been executed. She's committed treason. Yeah. So she got... It's quite a risk for her to take. It's a massive well, risk. It? And it's so out of character for her. But as I say, I feel like... I think that Richard just said something to her that she didn't like and just didn't give her the same assurances that Henry would be safe and that he could come home. Mm. And you've got to feel some sympathy, to be fair to her at this point, because... 
Her son's been living in exile since 1471. She hasn't had the chance to raise him, to spend much time with him at all. She finally, finally, it looks like he's going to come home. It looks like she's going to get the chance to get to know him at long last. And that's snatched away from her. Yeah. So, so if you understand, how old is Henry when he is to flee to France? He's 14. He's 14. So yeah. he's like almost, you know, the almost fighting age. Yeah. Just realistically, how much of a threat is he to the current crown at that time? Yeah, I mean, he isn't. He isn't a threat as such. Um, he isn't one of the Lancastrian male figureheads. All of those have been effectively wiped out either at the Battle of Tewkesbury or shortly after. Because, yeah. uh, you know, Henry VI is murdered shortly after Tewkesbury. His son has been killed at Tewkesbury or murdered, depending on what they yeah. subscribe to. And so that's, that's really it in terms of all the Lancastrian male figureheads. But Henry does have drops of Lancastrian blood in his veins. And I think they were enough to convince Margaret that Henry would be better off and safer abroad because, you know, she'd seen what had happened at Tewkesbury or heard about what had happened at Tewkesbury with Henry VI's son. Why yeah. would she want to risk her own son going the same way? So, yeah, he's, yeah. he's not a strong figurehead at that point, but he does pose a minor threat. Yeah, I suppose if you've seen, you have... Sons executed at Tewkesbury. You have sons executed after Towton. Yeah. You have you have the other side of sons executed after Wakefield. Yeah, exactly. There's a theme developing here, which if you're a mother, you don't want to take that chance, do you? Well, that's exactly it. And you know, Margaret had nearly died giving birth to Henry. She certainly didn't want to risk losing him at this point. So yeah, most of the sources do say that it's Margaret that urges Henry Tudor to go abroad and. I think probably that is the likeliest scenario. Would it be fair to view her as somebody who urges Henry to come back and invade as well? Is, is the seeds of that yeah. her idea as well? Yeah, I, I think they certainly are. I think, let's face it, we sort of touched upon this, but prior to 1483, the Yorkist dynasty seemed pretty secure. You know, you've yeah. got Edward IV in good health. Largely. Never lost a battle. Exactly, never lost a battle. Amazing military track record. And he's got two surviving sons. So it looks as though, you know, there's no chance for any kind of future for Henry in terms of the throne. And then, yeah, everything everything goes wrong. Everything goes to pot when Edward dies. Chaos breaks out here, really, mm. you know, with what happens with the princes in the tower and whatever. And I think that it is really that that leads her to see this opportunity for Henry and that that changes things. So I think she sees quite early on that there are those within England who are prepared to take up arms against Richard and uses that as an opportunity for Henry's benefit to place him as an alternative candidate. So yeah, I think she's very much, I think she is very much the driving force behind it actually. Yeah. Again, it's a big risk to take, though, because as I understand from when we did our episode on Henry VII with Nathan, you know, he's got to go up against Richard III. And say what you like about Richard III. He fought the vanguard at Tewkesbury aged what? Yeah, he was really young then, wasn't he? Yeah, so that's 16 or something like that. Yeah, yeah. He fought in Barnet. You know, Henry Tudor's fought nowhere yeah exactly you know it's uh, and for for his mother to go yeah you should take a shot at taking on this great <laughs> military monarch from this 
a virtually unstoppable military family yeah. is, is, is quite a jump. It we, is. You know, what do we know about what was driving that? I, I really do think, so we know that Margaret has this meeting with Richard III on the 5th of July, 1483, so the day before Richard's coronation. And the likelihood is that there was a debt that was discussed during that meeting. But I also think that it's incomprehensible that Margaret would not have mentioned her son and perhaps referenced this pardon that Edward IV had drafted for Henry to come home. I think she must have mentioned something. And I think Richard tells her something that she doesn't want to hear and either refuses permission for Henry to come home or something along those lines, because it is so extraordinary, like you said, it's a massive jump. It's so out of character for Margaret. But I think it's just at this point, pure desperation. I think she desperately wants to have her son home. She desperately wants to be afforded that chance to be a part of his life. And I think she just throws caution to the wind and kind of just thinks, sod it, I'm going to go for it now. At least if it goes wrong, Henry's out of Richard's way, he's abroad, and, you know, she's willing to risk everything for her son. He is the one true love of her life. And I think that if it meant that she was executed as a result, it was a risk that she was prepared to take. Yeah. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Okay, well, going back to her as... Um well, going back to going back to her and her son, because we said we've known for her determination, or she's known for her determination to see Henry the Seventh actually come to the throne. But we said there that's kind of a growing thing. Can we get into some specifics on how she facilitates that rise to power and the impact of her on the Tudor dynasty? Yeah, absolutely. So it's one of these annoyingly vague areas of Margaret's life in terms of. <laughs> how much of a role she played in the lead up to the Battle of Bosworth and and Henry's accession, because the sources just aren't really there. But we can surmise that she definitely was busy working behind the scenes. So what we do know is that she had been um, placed under house arrest under the custody of her husband, Lord Stanley, by Richard III for her complicity in the Buckingham Rebellion. She's had all her land and all her property taken from her at this point. So everything's under Stanley's control. She's very, very lucky not to have lost her life, to be perfectly fair. Um, But none of this 
actually stops Margaret from plotting on Henry's behalf. So we know that she is sending messengers abroad to communicate with Henry. Yeah. Um, there's also obviously the suggestion that she's sending money abroad to try and help them as well. But quite how much and you know what's being said, we don't actually know. What we do know, of course, is that when Henry does have a, victor a victory at the Battle of Bosworth, Margaret is very much at the forefront of his reign and there she is determined to stay. It's almost like not only is Bosworth Henry's moment, but it's also Margaret's. Mm -hmm. And realistically, I don't think either of them ever expected to win that battle. You've already commented on Richard's military yeah. experience. Henry's never fought a battle. What chance do they realistically have? Um, so I think it does come as a surprise to both of them. But I think gaining the crown is one thing, keeping it is quite another. Yeah. And so I think that Margaret was very active in trying to ensure that that happened. So we know that she was instrumental in Henry's decision to marry Elizabeth of York, which is like the best move possible, I think. Like, it's such yeah. a good idea. And um, It is still one that we can't really get our head rounds today, though, is it? It's like... Okay, you killed Uncle Richard. I know. <laughs> it's bonkers, isn't it? It's really, it's a strange one. Yeah. But yeah, it is. It's, and also kind of that whole relationship between Elizabeth and Richard III as well is, is really interesting. Um, so yeah, it's, I always find that really fascinating. I always think I'd like to be a fly on the wall in Elizabeth of York's chamber because it would have just been amazing to hear, well, not everything, but... <laughs> <laughs> some of the gossip going on yeah. there anyway yeah so um margaret is very keen on trying to establish this tudor dynasty and you know she is very much front and center at henry's court and this is at some point you know she begins to style herself margaret r as well some people say margaret r the r is in recognition of richmond her earlier title from marrying henry's father no no no, no. it's not <laughs> you know you only need to get to know margaret to i talk about her like she's my best friend she's obviously not but um i think it's very obvious that it's a very deliberate attempt by margaret to emphasize her newfound status and authority you know, all of her letters and things are styled. She's styled as my lady, the king's mother. She's obviously very, very proud of that. And she is there to play a supporting role. Um, but it's very clear as well that Henry relied on her advice as well and was very happy for her to take a prominent role in the country and what was going on. And also wanted her there, you yeah. know, because there is this thing where... People talk about her as being an overbearing mother-in-law. Well, let's not forget that wouldn't even have been a possibility. And I'm not saying I subscribe to that, by the way, but that would not even have been a possibility if Henry had not been happy to have her there in the first place. Yeah. You know, she's obviously wanted. And yeah, so she's, she's very much there playing this supporting role and doing whatever needs to be done to keep hold of the Tudor throne. Yeah, I mean, she's going to be around... Because it is a period of history where if you're king, it's really easy to send awkward women to convents. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you've got to be actually earning your place. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's quite telling, you know, the fact that obviously Bosworth's in the August of 1485 and then 
November, first parliament of Henry VII's reign, Margaret is made a femme sole. So she's a sole person. She can act independently of a husband. And this is absolutely extraordinary in a time when women were subservient to their husbands and when all their property, everything actually belonged to their husbands. The fact that Henry's been prepared to allow Margaret to have this femme sole status. So she does remain married to Lord Stanley, but effectively they're, they're friends. Um, and he served his purpose. He served his purpose now. Yeah, I'll have my things snapped back now. Thank you very much. And don't worry, I can see it from here. That's pretty much what it is. And she she's not letting anybody take that from her again. So it's it's really quite interesting. And Henry lets her do it again. So she's got this kind of reputation as being domine domineering, but it's all with Henry's blessing. Okay, so so moving on then in. So Margaret's educational pursuits are actually quite exceptional for a woman of her time. Yeah. And um, so can you discuss her intellectual interests and then the impact that these may have had on her reputation going further down the line? Yeah. So Margaret, it's quite clear, has always been interested in education. And she was educated to a reasonable standard herself, although she later really regretted the fact that she'd never been given the opportunity to learn Latin, which was, yeah, a regret for her. Having so, studied Latin, I she's got away with it. She's, <laughs> oh, okay. Well, <laughs> maybe she should be grateful that she got to do the French then. And <laughs> yeah, it's a win, is that? <laughs> um, so, yeah, she's, she's always been really interested in education. And... I think, you know, suddenly when her son becomes king and she's given the opportunity to be able to use all of her wealth and her newfound status and position to be able to benefit others, she doesn't hesitate to do that. And we see that in other aspects of her life as well. It's not just the colleges. She's, you only have to read her accounts to see that she's always using her money to help people you know she's founding almshouses she's paying for um the children of her chapel all sorts of things so it's obviously something that matters quite a great deal to her and um she takes a huge interest in Christ's college in Cambridge and um, which she founds in 1505 and again you can see her accounts are absolutely littered with references to Christ's it's so important to her and again all done actually with the support of someone who's become a really close friend to her by this point, which is John Fisher, and who later, you know, obviously, unfortunately, ends his life in a pretty gruesome manner under the reign of uh, Margaret's grandson. And um, so it's all done with his support. And it's really interesting, you know, because within her own lifetime, Margaret's celebrated for doing this for founding Christ's yeah. College. You know, she arrives for a visit on one occasion and the town basically greet her as if she's a queen. You know, all the bells in the city are rung and yeah. poor woman brings her a cake. It's all lovely. Um, but And then St. John's is founded in 1511, two years after Margaret's death. So she leaves money for the and instructions for the endowment of that. Both really, really important educational institutions but I think, actually, and this may be unfair, I don't know, but I feel like that part of her legacy is forgotten in terms of yeah. her reputation today. 
unless you go to Cambridge and the people of Cambridge think really warmly of her, really fondly of her, and it's, you know, it's amazing. But I think these days people are too quick to say, oh, well, that's the one that did away with the princes in the tower. <laughs> Not, oh, you know, actually, look at what she's done. She's benefited people with this gift of education not only within her lifetime but it's continuing to the present day so yeah that is quite a legacy isn't yeah, it yeah absolutely so so as we've discussed then her story intersects with some of the most pivotal moments in in english history yeah so what would you say is her most significant and lasting contribution to the historical narrative and how should we remember her today? Okay, so I think I think that we should remember her as being the foundress of the Tudor dynasty. And I think that that is actually her greatest achievement because she did help to instill the most famous dynasty in British history. The one that we talk about the most today, the one that we are fascinated by the most today, the one that grips us, the one that people like me are fortunate enough to be able to continue writing books about. <laughs> Forever. <laughs> thank goodness. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I Could think... refer you to our episode by Charlotte White of Just Shut Up About the Tudors. Which... Oh, okay. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, I think she actually deserves... That's her, her contribution. I think she is the one who deserves to be recognised as the foundress of the Tudor dynasty. Nobody risked or sacrificed as much as she did to drive that dynasty forward and to ensure that it survived. And I think it's almost quite, it's weird, isn't it? Because obviously Henry VII dies in April 1509. Henry VIII, his successor, is a couple of months shy of his 18th birthday. And literally Margaret dies the day after his 18th birthday. It's so weird. I almost feel like Henry turns 18 and she thinks, okay, job done. I can go yeah. now. And I've, I've done my bit to ensure that the next part of the dynasty can move forward and yeah. that it's done. So I think that we should remember her as a very strong, very brave individual who, not trying to say she's by any means perfect. She was human with the same flaws and imperfections as we all have. But she most definitely deserves to be assigned a more prominent and important role than she has been given. Because I don't think that without Margaret Beaufort, we would have the Tudor dynasty at all. And that's going to be a big dividing line over whether or not that was a good thing. Yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> she may have gone, oh, it's 18. I really don't need to see it's... what happens next. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Nicola. That was, that, that was a startling insight into a... A less evil, I would say probably still have to be quite ruthless Yeah, um, at that time. But that is a product of any noble man or noble woman yeah. of the day. You could say the same about Cecily Neville. You could certainly say the same about Margaret of Anjou. Yeah, for sure. You know, and going earlier than that, you can certainly say the same of Isabella of France. Yeah, exactly. But then I think all of those women have been really harshly judged. And, you know... I. I just think it's time to reassess these women and look at them through the lens of the times in which they were living. And actually, when you put them into that sort of context, you see them in a slightly different light. Well, thank you very much. Pleasure. Have you had fun? Do you feel better? I've had so much fun. Thank you. I feel like I've got it all up my chest. I can go and have a lovely day. <laughs> well, do enjoy it.
If you'd like to know more about this subject, then you can start by reading Nicola's excellent book, Uncrowned Queen. We will have links to that in the History Rage bookshop, and you can follow Nicola on Twitter, at Nicola Tallis. But once again, Nicola, thank you very much for being our first live History Rager of the Gloucester History Festival. Thank you for having me, Paul. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. We have several more coming for you over the course of the festival. If you've not managed to make it this year, then the festival will return twice in 2024. Those dates are the 12th of April to the 14th of April and the 7th of September to the 22nd of September 2024. You can sign up to the festival mailing list at gloucesterhistoryfestival.co.uk and you can follow them on Twitter at GlossHisFest. And if you're loving this, please follow us on Twitter at History Rage and please support us on Patreon. In return for your cherished £5 per month, we will give you early episodes, entry into all of our prize draws, the invite to put questions to future guests, and of course, the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. But until our next Rage, featuring Nathan Amen, stay angry. Bye-bye.